This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to the Rerooted Podcast with Francesca Maxime, trauma-sensitive mindfulness meditation teacher and poet. Together, we'll take a closer look at approaches to transforming trauma with insights from psychology, neuroscience, spirituality, social justice, and the creative arts. Join Francesca and her guests for an exploration of our shared connection and how we can cultivate greater compassion for ourselves and for others. If you'd like to support Francesca and the Rerooted Podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Francesca. Hey, everybody. I'm Francesca Maxime, and welcome to this edition of the Rerooted Podcast here on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network. Uh, it is a warm June day, and I am here on Lenape and Canarsay land here in Brooklyn, New York, and just recognizing that my pronouns are she, her, hers, that I'm a cishet Haitian, Dominican, Italian, American woman, and really just socially locating myself in that as an able-bodied, uh, now Buddhist, formerly Catholic person, uh, and bringing all of that into this conversation today, as I often do, and just beginning to practice what it means to get used to and familiar with our pronouns, with how we want to identify, how we might others, how we might want others to see us and how we're not all just the same or whatever it is that we we perceive other ones to be, other people to be. Uh, my friend Lamarado and says, you know, uh, I don't get to consent to how other people view me. And so if I can help inform you about how I prefer to be viewed or how I like to be seen or my multi, you know, ethnic identity and my intersectionality, perhaps that can help inform you as to how to relate to me in a way that is more embodied and helpful. And so today I'm talking to Amr Ahmed, Dr. Amr Ahmed. He is an organizational strategist who helps institutions and leaders address diversity and inclusion, equity, and intercultural development through consulting, coaching, group facilitation, and keynote speeches. A frequently requested speaker, his approach is grounded in a commitment to inclusive excellence in organizations and communities, and he brings his identity as the son of Indian Muslim immigrants and extensive years as an intercultural and diversity consultant as the sources of a pivotal understanding of the depth of diversity and inclusion work. He's worked with large organizations, higher ed institutions, nonprofit agencies, schools, and community groups. And he's here with us today to talk a little bit about, as we continue to talk about institutionalized racism, anti-Black racism, and also just racism and implicit bias and all the ways in which it plays out structurally through institutions, organizations, nonprofits, 
perhaps even families, um, and all the different layers and all the intersections around this from different ethnic identity and racial groups. How do we begin to have a conversation that is not only inside out, which is my focus, but also that can start with something that's a little bit more outside in. Dr. Ahmed, welcome. It's nice to see you, Amr. Thanks for joining us on Rebooted. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so for, you know, just purposes uh, of, although I did the introduction, was there anything else that you would like to offer about your own self-identity that wasn't there? Uh, I, I'm currently on Nanatuck uh, land in Western Massachusetts. Uh, I use he, him pronouns, uh, cis, het, uh, uh, male identified. And, uh, you know, just really thankful to have the opportunity to do this in a time of tremendous challenges for so many people. Just want to express some gratitude for all the people's labor that's out there doing very um, challenging work that allows us to be able to do what we're doing today. Yes, I appreciate that, and 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 I share that um, that appreciation and that gratitude. And um, just maybe to open up our conversation, uh, you know, what brought you into doing the kind of work that you do now to really interrogate uh, inclusion and equity issues in organizations and 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 different kinds of communities. Yeah, so I grew up in Ohio um, in an environment in which most people were either black or white, um, and I was neither. Uh, and I went to a public high school that was about, uh, 40% black, 60% white. And, you know, I was part of the point, whatever other, um, and it's really interesting, especially back then in the nineties, just being positioned in which you're moving between these different groups of people. Um, and, but not part of the dynamic, um, in terms of the issues and the history, um, and then being part of another group um, with a completely different thing that isn't really that well known by either group uh, in particular. Um, and so navigating and negotiating that um, really taught me a lot, but it also coming from an immigrant family made me realize how little I understood about the country in which I lived in. Um, oftentimes immigrant families, uh, and this was true in my family and my community that, you know, don't, haven't taken the time to learn that the historical context of why things are the way they are um, in this country. And um, I definitely did not understand that, but I definitely saw that there was a dynamic, there was a reality, there were things that um, my black friends were sharing with me about their experiences um, that were, there were similarities, but it was different as well. Um, mm -hmm. um, there were things that white people would say to me that they, I knew they, that they wouldn't say to black people. Um, and um, uh, and vice versa. Uh, and so, you know, I, that kind of in between this, even though I was not of e either group, it's different from being biracial, uh, uh, in the, that I'm not connected to either group, but the kind of the moving in between and hearing the perceptions and it, I think it just gave me an, uh, a perspective. And as I engage my education further in black studies and cultural anthropology and in college and in grad school, uh, coupled with um, study abroad experiences in South Africa during the truth and reconciliation process, um, as well as um, studying uh, uh, in Nepal. I studied Hinduism and Buddhism in Nepal. Um, you know, it just gave me a perspective that I, I think wasn't that typical as I came into the work. Um, 
uh, I really was more of an activist before I came into the work, um, especially around hip hop uh, as a tool for creating social change. Right. And then eventually, uh, you know, because I decided that I really didn't want to be a professor. I didn't want to go on that track. Well, I made that decision somewhere during graduate school when I was getting my master's. Um, and so I was just looking for something that I viewed at that time as more action based. Um, and you know, the, the one place I found, um, at that time was kind of running multicultural centers and colleges and universities. And that's basically how I got into the work. I, I brought that activist mindset. I brought that, um, that experience and background that I had. And what I found over time is that I, I had a perspective that was not shared by most of the other people around me. There weren't a lot of people in my background in the field. Um, and I, over time, started to realize that there was a, that was an asset, that I brought something to the work uh, that was unique and different. Um, and so I started to own that over time. Yeah, I love that, that it's sort of a personal awakening to sort of own that over time, right? That you know that there's a certain um, thing about you that I'm, I'm, I'm not black and I'm not white. I'm sort of in the middle here, but I'm having access to, you know, these different conversations. And, um, and I'm wondering if that gave you enough distance, um, perhaps from some of these experiences to be able to really dig deep and then talk to different kinds and groups of people in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there was a lot of adapting. Um, there was a lot of kind of shifting, um, in different environments and situations, um, and there was also an experience of being a uh, feeling misunderstood. And so it was difficult to own my experience because it, growing up, what I viewed my background to be was the thing that made me different. Uh, and, and it was framed oftentimes by white people as weird, you know, oh, you don't eat pork. That's weird. Oh, you don't drink alcohol. Why not? You're not allowed to date, you know, coming from a relatively you know, traditional Muslim family, those things were framed as weird. Whereas my experience with black people were, was more like, oh yeah, you know, we're not like white people either. So yeah, it's cool. You're, you're, <laughs> you're with us. Um, and, um, and then the other thing around being Muslim was that, you know, it was true in many communities, definitely true in my community. There was a African-American Muslim community in my, my town. Um, it also, which also raised questions because it was a separate mosque for the immigrant, uh, South, mostly South Asian uh, Muslims and the, from the African American Muslims, and I'm being told that we're all brothers and sisters. Um, but why do we have a different mosque in different parts of town? You know, um, yeah. At the same time, you know, a lot of African Americans being Muslim was not as foreign to them as it was to white people. This is pre 9/11. You know, because a lot of people had Muslims in their family. You know, and so, um, you know, they're like, oh yeah, you know, we get the no pork thing or the no alcohol thing. We get it. So, um, and so it was like that level of acceptance was really valuable for me. It, it meant a lot to me, um, because it felt, I felt at least some degree of being seen. Um, and it caused me to value those relationships. But again, I'm not being treated exactly the same way as black people. And I see that I see how white people are wanting to befriend me and, and then I start to realize over time and they're, and they're asking me questions about black people Interesting. You know, that, I, that I know that they won't ask black people. Right. Like what? Um, um, like why is Chris Rock allowed to make fun of white people, but uh, white uh, people or white comedians can't make fun of black people, you know? Um, and I'd be like, are you serious? Is that a real question? And 
why are you asking me these questions? Right. Um, and so I, I would be used as this intermediary. And also what I started to realize over time is that white people were using their relationship with me to justify in their own minds that they weren't racist. Right. Well, I'm friends with Amir. So therefore I can't be racist. And therefore my attitudes about black people are actually justified. Right. Uh, because, um, uh, because that's really about what I think about their way of life or what the way they do things. It's not about racism. Right. Because, because I can't be racist because I'm friends with Amir. Interesting. So you're saying that their conversations with you are in service to their own um, sort of feeling better about whatever their, uh, their racist attitudes are. <laughs> Yeah. So I started to figure out over time, um, cause I mean, let's be real. I mean, just as a person coming from a very clear cultural and spiritual religious background from another part of the planet where you're told very clearly, this is who you are, this is where you're from. It becomes very difficult to understand people who don't seem to understand so little about other people who are different from them. Uh, whereas for me, I, like I, always had to learn and understand a lot about other people in order to be able to function and operate in the world. But then also what particularly stuck out to me, what I always thought was really strange was when white people would say, uh, I don't have, I don't really have a culture when they would say, I wish I had a culture like you. Yeah. And I'm, what are you talking? I see your culture every day. Like, <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And, and that, is really what to me um, set this idea of whiteness apart from the vast majority of human beings. And I, and I was fortunate to get the opportunity to travel to other places in the world. And I'm like, I've never been anywhere on this planet in which human beings say that they don't have a culture like that is. And, and then I started to learn about the, you know, through my education about the construction of race and, you know, whiteness being made up thing. And that when Europeans came to the United States, they didn't compete with themselves as white and so forth. Um, and then I started to realize like, oh, there's like this deep void in, and it's like they're reaching and they're searching. And it's like, and it's like, there's this emptiness and, and there's, and there's, and that's the, re like, cause you know, at first appropriation, the cultural appropriation was, more angering to me, which is, I think, a normal reaction when you see people who don't value other human beings, but want the things that are sacred and that they value and that are uh, that comprise their culture and spirituality. But then, but then I was like, I was realizing over time, oh, there's this, there's this thing that's missing. There's hollowness, this emptiness and this void that's reaching. And I'm like, how do you understand and really empathize with uh, who other human beings are if you don't have that thing that was very clearly given to me. That was right. like, we are this, this is who we are. This is what we come from. We are not that. And, and that is made very clear from the beginning, right? And irrespective of what you become and evolve into, which people would rather you stick as close to that as possible, but irrespective of that, that's always there, right? But it's not like white people teach each other. This is what it means to be white. Right. <laughs> you know, this is the, these are the values associated with it. And, you know, over well, time. Well, they do, but they don't name it explicitly, right? It's right. pull yourself well, up by the bootstraps. It's, it's apple pie and the American yeah. flag. It's not a cultural piece. It's what's been co-opted or unnamed as that. 
Yeah. And a, a lot of it is about capitalism. A lot of it is the replacement of, of identity, replacement of being German or I, you know, you know, Irish people were not considered white at first, but now they are. And, you know, Irish, Italian, Jews, these were not, people were not considered white, but eventually they became absorbed into this thing known as whiteness. And, and it, again, there was a set of values and traditions and things that had meaning that people passed down and said, this is what it means to be what we're from. And really that got, there was a choice, especially for those uh, marginalized ethnic uh, Europeans of you either hold on to what you came from um, and suffer for that. Remember there was a phrase, Irish need not apply. Right. <laughs> right? Um, and of course, Italian Americans also were not considered white. For sure. Um, and so, it, or you assimilate, you give up the thing that is so sacred to you, which is true for any human being, the things, the values, the things that you come from that have been passed down generation after generation, you give that up for economic opportunity and access. And literally to become a manager in the industrialized United States, you needed to assimilate into this notion of white and you were expected to live in certain neighborhoods that were deemed white neighborhoods. Right. And so that process, and it's really an assimilation into Anglo capitalistic kind of values um, that really causes the generations to follow to say, I don't know what I am. I don't right. know what I come from. Like, and I see it, it is it completely it's completely understandable for someone who feels that way to see someone like me or to see black people or to see Latinx folks and to be like, you have this thing that I don't have. And what is the one mechanism of power to get that? Capitalism. So therefore that's the means in which I'm going to try to fill this void, the the mechanics of it, that if I, you know, and, and, and in the process, there isn't a recognition of that. What occurs when you commodify the sacred that, that when you slap a price tag on a statue of Buddha, right, that, that somehow my capitalistic kind of taking of that is going to replace this void that I feel, which it never will, right? And, and because it loses capitalism, what it does is that it causes the, a loss of meaning and value to, the, to, to that which gets commodified, right? So now it no longer holds that meaning. You know, yoga no longer holds the sacred spiritual practice meaning, right? When we modified it. So therefore, I'm trying to fill this void, but I keep commodifying it in a way that doesn't really fully do that. So then it's more and more and more and more and more, you know? And so that's the kind of cycle that I think we, uh, a lot of white America has gotten trapped into and that allows the self-delusion and the denial of the implications for everybody else. Yeah. And you said so much there. And and as you're saying it, I'm like, yeah, that is the Buddha's first teaching is about craving and insatiability and the cycle of suffering. And that that is capitalism in terms of it'll never be enough and it'll never be, you know, you're always looking out there and the answer is in here. But if you've been 
forced to assimilate in service to survival or capitalism as my Italian ancestors were, couldn't speak the Italian language, had to kind of, you know, be a certain way in order to get through. And they all did. They were the ones who went to graduate school and became, you know, the pre-model minority minority, right? And and mm-hmm. then became white because of their uh, light-skinned uh, inherited privilege, although we know that's a construct and all of the things that mm-hmm. go along with that, but now live as white people in this culture mm-hmm. in a way that um, allows access to things that other people who are more brown-skinned and darker-skinned and black just don't have access to because of that system. But what I yeah. love about what you're saying is, is that there's so much uh, sacrificed, given up without the interrogation around who were we and what were we before we became white. And there are courses out there for listeners and viewers to know, like whiteawake.org, where they take you through a journey of understanding what it is from the European descended folks here who have had to give up who they are and how they are in terms of dress, in terms of language, in terms of food, in terms of, you know, ways of community gathering, where you where you live, even what you worship, in order to be able to, as you say, assimilate as opposed to acculturate, as opposed to have there be a multiracial society where there is more accommodation and integration of a multiracial identity culturally, and that this void and it's not the great void and the emptiness that we talk about in mindfulness circles and in Buddhist circles, right? Because that is more in terms of what we're talking about in terms of process, oneness, interdependence. But the way you're framing it, which is precise language also, is about this emptiness, meaning that there's this longing, there's this um, there's this place where I'm feeling unmoored and I'm not feeling, to use the name of this podcast, rooted into my identity, into my sense of place as a human, as a spiritual embodied being, as someone who is interconnected um, with everyone else. And so I have all these fangled, newfangled ways uh, of trying to grasp that through structures and systems and othering that try and help me feel safer or better about myself because this is the cost of what it means to have to be white in America. Yeah, it's it's an, uh, the, I have the same word an unrootedness and and the thing is that when when it, in terms of some of the core kind of interventions that I have around this work is it starts with self awareness it's it's an understanding of who am I where do I come from and obviously that's a multi layered different but just even on a basic level like. Where do what do I come from? What was passed down to me? What are the values what are, that were instilled in me um, that lay the foundation? Because if I if that is your reference point to be able to compare and contrast what makes you who you are in relationship to everybody else. If I don't have that, right? I don't have that reference point that when I'm engaging difference, um, I'm I'm not able to say, oh, okay, well you know, okay, that that's kind of like what we do, but it's a little bit different. Right, and then right, you, right. you don't go through that negotiation, right? That's what I was doing my whole life. You know, there's what my family's telling me at home. The moment I stepped out of my house, I'm like, okay, I see that white people tend to be doing X, Y, and Z more like this. I see black people are kind of doing like this. It's kind of like us in this way, but it's different in that way. You know, that's what human beings do when we engage difference, right? We're, we're in this negotiation using ourselves as a reference. 
And that's the mindful curiosity around that, meaning that you're testing, checking. You're not saying, oh, good, bad. You're just saying, huh, that's interesting or different than the way we do it. Or gee, now I see that there's some kind of structure or system in place to hold that space. Whether it's like, you know, how people do food or how people do, you know, gatherings or how people celebrate um, you know, certain kinds of things. I mean, it could be any number of things, but that it's not to say that, that when we bring to that, what you're saying, what I hear you saying is that you're bringing or did bring to that and do bring to that sort of a mindful curiosity about it, as opposed to saying, oh, well, it's not my way. So it's not good or not bad, which mm-hmm. I think is sort of the default of the unchecked, non-self-aware, to your point about self-awareness, sort of whiteness culture. Yeah. And I, one, one thing I, I don't want to miss in relationship to what we talked about was the, the story of immigration um, and the, and the racialization of that. And again, like we, we said Irish and Jewish people and, um, and, and Italian people were not considered white. And then it, it's really important that there were laws, immigration laws that said that you had to come, you, you had to come from Europe to be legally allowed to immigrate to the United States until 1965. The reason why my family came and many others that were not white now, that would be considered not white in the United States now is because of the changing of that law, those laws. And so that coupled with everything else we talked about is part of what moved the line of, of who's white. And it, it's not that the rest of us didn't, uh, didn't feel the same pressure to assimilate. Yes, we do. But there's a point in which the line, when once it moved, there's a point in which you can't cross, right? Um, there's a, th- that since 1965, it's been made very clear that no matter how much you assimilate, at the end of the day, we're going to remind you that you cannot cross this line. And then for, for people like from my community, 9-11 made it abundantly clear whatever degree we may have had some, you know, some kind of self delusion that like we've assimilated into this American ideal and, or we're going along with it. And and let's be very clear. It's there's at the very least somatically, it's understood that, that we are not embodied white people in this country. Like we will never be like, it's, you know, my parents were very clear that pre nine 11, it was, we should just be glad that they let us into their country, Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and, you know, don't get involved with politics. Don't talk about religion. Don't talk about anything controversial. Stay away from police, you know, be quiet. Do not engage. Just be happy that we're here. It was always this tenuous likeness of like, okay, they we're here. We know that they're never going to accept us fully, but we're just here to get, what, what we think we came here to get. Flying under the radar is sort of the model minority. And I would say that that's often the experience of women, even in their whiteness in this country, because of course we don't even have the Equal Rights Amendment in terms of people like my mother, who was an Italian doctor. She was Italian-American, uh, you know, daughter of people who you know, were immigrants, my great grandparents, but that in order for her to get through things like medical school, although she was white, although she had to work to earn her own money to put, to go through and everything that she had to fly under the radar and bite her tongue and just sort of stay quiet and not, you know, offend the white powers that, you know, that be Mm -hmm. in order to have access to that in much the same way that you're, I hear you explaining that culturally, you know, uh, people of Southeast Asian descent, for example, have had to do that and then have been told, well, you're the model minority, which means that you don't create waves or trouble. 
Right. And, 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 and along the way, we do various types of assimilative behavior to try to put the dominant at, at ease. And around gender, the example I try to get remind people of is what uh, um, the women identified individuals uh, would wear in corporate America in the 1980s, you know, the you know, or how they would present themselves visually, you know, the, the shoulder pads and the short haircuts, the, the performance of masculinity. Right. And, and, and so around race, it's the performance of whiteness. Let me, the, the, the greater I perform a proximity to, to the dominant culture, the less threatened I am and the more access and opportunity relatively, there's a line I can't cross, but relatively I can negotiate it well enough. And then for my community, again, 9-11 ended up being this drawing line where you can draw the line in the sand of two different realities um, in, in which a lot of the people that made those negotiations in my community were suddenly like, and again, I was pursuing some of the education and, and inquiry that we were talking about before 9-11. So I was one of the few from my community that cared about these things. Um, but then 9-11 happened and all of a sudden they're like, okay, black America, like, you know, stand with us. And, and a lot of, you know, black folks were like, oh, so now you care about right. what we've been experiencing because now it's turned on you, right? In that way, you know? Yeah, I, and I think that that's so critical. And I, I remember I was at the time a journalist and reporting, you know, during 9-11. And I remember um, all the ways in which um, folks uh, who were in newsrooms started to demonize people who were of Muslim descent and even people who weren't like Sikhs. Yeah, and, um, people were perceived as Muslims. Yeah, right. And 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 the massacre that happened there and, and you know, and all of the different yeah. microaggressions and ways that people, um, that people have... Uh, have taken on that, that, that othering, uh, in -hmm. a way to, uh, to dismiss and to, um, to be racist and to be, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And if you know, you you made allusions to the Wisconsin Gurdwara temple massacre, um, that happened of the Sikh temple there, um, that, you know, in our climate of mass shootings, you know, we all know Newtown, we all know Tucson, we know Aurora, Virginia Tech, they, Las Vegas, we have this, there's this resonance, we, and we never forget, we never mentioned Wisconsin, we never mentioned this uh, in that list, and it was the only one that President Obama didn't go to, uh, and mourn, we didn't mourn the loss of these lives in the same way, um, and then the person who commits that, they're a crazy individual, right? Um, and, and they're not deemed a terrorist, right? They're a crazy individual, but then the Orlando shooter somehow represents somebody like, right. So it's the collectivizing of, of brown people, black and brown people, but the individualizing of white people. So therefore they're not represent. And that's a very clear characteristic of whiteness of that, that we're not part of some collective, collective dynamic. It's just coincidence that we just happen to do lots of things and interpret lots of things in similar ways, right? Relatively. I mean, obviously there's distribution within that, but that's true of any group, right? But, um, and, and there's, a, there, there's a way in which white supremacy functions and operates in which uh, when you collectivize everybody, everybody else, therefore, if one person does something, that justifies and rationalizes our treatment. Right. right. There's reasons why we have these attitudes. There's reasons why we th- we have these attitudes about Muslim or black people or whatever, because look at what that person did. 
right? Yeah. So therefore, yeah. therefore, hey, it's just a, you know, it's just a price of safety. You know, we got to keep our neighborhood safe. Yeah, right, right, right. It's it's and, then, it's, and that's rooted in fear, right? Well, exactly. Which justifies and rationalizes the whole thing. And maybe we can go there because <clears throat> you know, I think that there was um I think her name's Kimberly Jones. She's a uh, a black protester who was talking about Tulsa and Rosewood and if you haven't seen it, she does a a really masterful um explanation of all the ways in which, you know, she uses a monopoly game as an example and saying like, you know, you didn't get us, you know, we didn't have the loans, we didn't have the money, we didn't have the equity. There was a systematic denial of that. There's a reason why, you know, you broke the social contract, white America. You broke the social contract a long time ago, but it's perpetuated over time. And even now, um, it's continued to be um, perpetuated. And she says, you're lucky we're not looking for revenge. We're looking for equality. Mm. And so, you know, that is so powerful. And so you talk about fear. And um, what is that core fear? Is it in fact that white people, white bodied people in this country have this deep seated fear that you know, it's also said that um, equality feels like oppression to someone who has white racial privilege um, and mm-hmm. perhaps class privilege consequently to, to go back to the the core of all of this, which is capitalism and, um, you know, wealth building for certain, you know, populations on quite literally and of quite literally the bodies of black and indigenous and, and, and brown people. Um, is that core fear related to uh, a dissociation, a, an aversion to this um, sort of somatic deep knowing um, that we we that we've never had. You mentioned the Truth and Reconciliation Project in um, South Africa. That mm-hmm. we've never had a sorry day like Africa. We've never named. You know, Juneteenth is coming up at the end of the week, which is uh, you know the end of enslavement. Uh, you know, if you're going to sort of categorize it on a on a on a calendar, that that you know date is supposed to you know sort of represent that in a way. Um, but that that's not something that's a national holiday, although there are calls for that, and I hope it does become that. Um, but that but that there's this core fear and is it not about, I cannot hold the truth of what we have done systemically. I cannot tolerate the distress of what it's like. I am either going to go into shame or I'm going to go into attack. Shame feels bad. Attack makes me feel powerful and better. And so I'm going to continue to other and try to dominate and be a part of this system because I don't want to give up anything. And I don't know who I really am anyway, because I haven't interrogated why the whiteness has overtaken my cultural roots and I'm feeling unrooted. And Therefore, I am going to continue to just hold on to this insatiable, you know, sort of greedy, othering uh, way of being, whether it's implicit and just sort of embedded in my psyche or whether it's something where I'm actively doing, you know, violent behavior. Yeah, I mean, I think that when you individuate and you and you you collect capital and there isn't this sense of collective um responsibility, collective relations and stake, you know, we, we then dehumanize, right. And we don't think that that's what we're doing, but we, we disassociate in a way to say that, well, that's you. And then I do think that, like you're saying, this is intuitive knowing on a land of genocide, a land of enslavement, a land of ongoing systemic oppression of black people, um, that, that, somehow what I've gotten in relationship to this is tenuous, right? And there's an energy to that. And that uh, there's, a, there's a fear of um, the consequences of that, right? And so, um, and then there's a lack of a desire for any reminder 
<laughs> of of conscious reminder of that. And one conscious reminder, as we think about Black Wall Street and uh, and we think about Tulsa, uh, which is in the kind of ethos right now um, in our country, um, as we have the 99th anniversary of the the, um, the burning of Black Wall Street in Tulsa, um, is that. The, and this is something I learned in studying black studies is that the number one thing that has always been feared is black autonomy and self-determination. Mm. That, I mean, so, I mean, there's not a coincidence that once, I mean, uh, yeah, you have to think about how um, unbelievable of a story, the survival and resilience of black people in this country is right. Yes. Subjected to one of the most horrific things that have ever happened in human history, finding a way when there was no rational or reason way drawing from spirit, drawing from spirit to believe that, that there is some reason to go forward, piecing together family and community when that was the number one thing denied and dismantled. Of a human be- of human being, think about how beyond r- rational and reasonable it seems to be that human beings could find a way, right, to overcome that, right, a system that constantly was dismantling everything that we understand that makes being a human a human, right? Finding a way to find the resilience, piecing it together, and then we finally figure out how to create something in which we can support one another and have resilience. And then every step of the way, the dominant culture finds a way to dismantle that. Mm. And every single time we, we get, we start to piece together family, community, resources, wealth, and so forth. Right. And so the reality is that um, I think the dominant culture and I'll say white America with that, is much more comfortable with the idea of projects than Black Wall Street, right? right. The idea of Black self-determination, right? Um, and that's really what's underrooted Black nationalism, right? What underrooted early Malcolm X and even late Malcolm X, the idea of self-determination, autonomy. We don't, the thing we need to do is disassociate from this power structure and create our own thing because that's what's keeping us down, right? Um, And whether that's realistic or not in the United States, that's another conversation. But that's the yearning, that's the striving of like, this thing keeps, keeps trying to destroy us every single time we do we do something. So we have to defend ourselves and we have to find a way to have some kind of peace um, and, and sanity in this world by, by loving and supporting one another in the face of that. Yeah. 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 I really appreciate what you're saying. And, you know, it just comes, you know, the Harlem Renaissance, black excellence, black joy, you know, all of these things. And then I look at the Kardashians and, uh, you know, becoming billionaires around essentially having cornrows and, and being in this, you know, space where it's uh, it's, it's really, um, culturally appropriating uh, a lot of what Black culture is about, and then marketing that in a way, uh, you know, that that just is capitalism at its. If you're them and you're a billionaire, best in terms of how that system is, but worst in terms of what our collective common humanity is, and also um, not crediting. And 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 we see this uh, a lot. Mm-hmm. We see this a lot. 
Um, it's just an it's, example. It's how and that's how colonization functions. And that we'll probably get to this, but that that's part of where I think it's really important for those of us in the United States to understand that this is our version of colonialism. Right. Um, and that's the reason why we see this play out with South Asian culture around yoga and around um, even Buddhism, quite honestly. And, and we, you and I haven't talked about this, and, but I, I you know, um, have been engaging, some, you know, contemplative education spaces that are based here in Western Massachusetts. But I was deeply resistant to engaging that world um, when I first um, learned about it, when I moved to Western Massachusetts, because. I view that world as a bunch of white people taking South Asian culture right. uh, or Asian culture. And that if I come into that, then I'm saying that that's okay. Right. Um, and fortunately that that community has moved much more radically towards the commitment to justice and, and, and equity. And that's what's allowed me the space to go in and for us to have very real conversations about that um, because I'm not against cultural exchange, but I am, but I do have a problem with appropriation and, and, a, and, a, and a key underpinning of, of colonization anywhere in the world is the demonization of the people and the taking of the, of the cultural capital, right? right. Um, right. By the dominant culture and, while not be, having any stake in the liberation and, uh, and the advancement of the people from which these pieces come from. So we'll take black culture, but we're not, we won't take the people. We'll take yoga, but we won't be invested and what's going on in, in South Asia. And as you say that, what's coming to mind is, is that that is the mentality, meaning it's so embedded. It's the same as having extraction of the planet. It's the same as, you know, extracting fossil fuels and of raising the Amazon and of always taking the natural resources and of just polluting in the sense that, you know, if we're talking about life, if we're talking about respect, if we're talking about integrity, clearly human beings as embodied humans are uh, a very, um, you know, specific and unique, uh, you know, different cultures and, and the ways that you're talking about, you know, that are denied rights, denied mm -hmm. opportunities, but that we also are doing this to our, our planet in that same way where we have no regard and disregard and extractive and always, you know, digging more and deeper in this way and exploiting and that there's no nourishment or generative aspect to it in the way that we saw with indigenous peoples and do see still. And that there's this reclamation of that moving toward learning how to grow your own food, learning how to live sustainably, mm -hmm. learning. And I don't mean the um, sort of wellness or well-being world of like buy organic or grow your, you know, have chickens in your backyard. I mean like a real embodied total gestalt sort of worldview around your um, way of being in the world that isn't uh, extractive. Yeah, it's, it's manifest destiny. It's uh, the sense of entitlement to the resources um, of the planet. And that includes the human beings. And that's what justifies slavery. And uh, that's what rationalizes the extraction of minerals and resources. Um, it's, the, it's, it's really what underpins all of colonization. And what we are in is an extension of that, that very same product. Like nothing has changed other than some specific details of, okay, we're not legally allowed to enslave people anymore. We're not legally allowed to exploit la uh, labor and, and transport it all over the world. But but we still do, right? right. But we, we, we just do it in a different way and in a less explicit and overt way. And that, you know, it, they talk about sharecropping as slavery by a different name. And so every step of the way, the system, and again, we have to include 
United States, our, these are our versions of a broader global process of col colonialism and capitalism uh, that the system will do as much as it can get away with um, in, in, in maintaining itself, right? So it requires a complete disruption and complete reevaluation and complete uh, difference in function and operating. That, and that's the reason why even the environmental movement has had has not been adequately addressing environmental racism and so forth because we haven't gotten to the root of the problem that even in the environmental movement we haven't wrestled with the fact that we're basically taking indigenous principles um and acting like it's some new idea right you know we haven't reconciled right because it's every single time it's us coming up with it. it's new it's it's our thing as opposed to wait a minute there's this deeper wisdom that human beings all over the planet already have known and understood that right. this is not what we should be doing, that right. this is, there's a reason for that. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, that would be, you know, Dharma or Tao or the way, or however it is, the natural order of things and, and that interdependence, um, that, that just sort of understanding that like, you know, this makes sense. This is how things go. You know, a tree comes, it grows, it dies, it, you know, it nourishes the other, like, as opposed to, uh, and, you know, we just have to take all the trees and, and then mm -hmm. fall out from that over time. Yeah. How, Cycles. Cycles. Right. It's just, right. it's the way of the universe, you know, it's right. And that's like, nothing is permanent, personal or perfect, mm -hmm. right? Like we're, we're, when we understand, you know, this whole thing, as you're talking, it makes me think of, there's so much attachment from psychology language. We talk about the ego, you know, the I, that it, mm -hmm. we talk about these ideas of my identity, who am I and what am I? And I'm a thing and I'm fixed. And, you know, my personality is who I am. I come into the world with a certain temperament. Yeah. That does stay kind of constant, but at the same time, this other, piece of my neural firing and wiring is very plastic over time as we've learned through neuroscience, but that it's structurally and systemically, um, you know, sort of imprinted upon us. And for us to be a self-aware, as you said, of what those imprintings are in a white supremacist culture and what is whiteness and B, how we end up then embodying or living out what that programming is, along with all the personal principles that we have just in our family of origin or in our smaller circles. And then what do we want to do to be able to interrupt an open up to trusting this greater dharmic wisdom, this greater sort of way of the indigenous wisdom that we are all in some ways indigenous, but that it's those of us who forget or don't mm -hmm. know that we are or who have lost that to find a way to reroute ourselves into what some of that is. And many and much of that is done in community, which is in direct opposition to what we are told in this culture is acceptable as an individualist, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Everybody makes it on their own kind of a, a philosophy, mm -hmm. which is not sustainable or generative or connective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, so from there, I want to dive in as we sort of begin to wind down a little bit. Um, this other aspect around creativity and um, around how the ways in which, um, you know, you said you use hip hop and poetry. I'm also a poet. How that has been used uh, and can be used in a way to access uh, different ways of thinking about these things, different ways of being, different ways of understanding, and also maybe give us an example or two about how you move into an organization or a community and start to do kind of the work that you do. What would you do with people, mm -hmm. especially with white-bodied folks? Yeah, well, I think it's deeply connected to what you were just talking about, which is that there's these kind of deeper human um, realities about how we as human, pe 
different beings negotiate the universe and 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 nature in a way that um is um with the flow of that as opposed in opposition to that and and human beings have always needed ritual um and music and art and expression is part of the expression of that ritual right and in indigenous cultures you always had the drum right you always had rhythm you always had and and if you think about our we we live on a rhythm on our our heartbeat is this repeating rhythm and there's a breath that repeats and so we are an expression of the way in which all of nature works and so our congruence and connectivity to that is is about being in line with that and with hip hop a lot of people don't realize this and actually my academic research kind of connects to this is that it's an extension of the West African cultural aesthetic, right? Black culture in America is, is in it, um, an evolution and a renegotiation and a recontextualization of particularly West African cultural aesthetics, not entirely, but mostly um, it's an amalgamation, but those aesthetics cut across all those different traditions and hip hop is a recontextualized, reformulated reformulation of that very same process. It's very rhythmic based, right? Which is very human, very universal. We, we, as you would say, somatically connect um, Mm -hmm. and spiritually connect to this, to, to this rhythmic way of operating. If you notice Western European kind of culturalist um, musical aesthetics aren't as rhythmic driven, which I think is very interesting. Um, But, and so if, that be, is is true that rhythm and and our ability to 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 engage in ritual um, is this human need and desire. It mean it means that it's universal universal in its connectivity, which means it empowers us to come together and to be able to create uh, community uh, and therefore uh, build power collectively. And, and with that, we can make choices and decisions about how we want to live. How do we want to operate in the world? And that is where I think the opportunity for activism ends up being, where we can say, hey, there's a real conflict and contrast between how we're trying to be in community with the way the world is functioning and operating. Mm-hmm. So then what do we do about it? What are the things that we put into in, in action? Um, and how do we use this universality of art in our expression and connect community and connectivity with one another uh, to to do transformational things and creating change, knowing that there's a power in being able to reach human beings um, that is beyond the rational, beyond the logical, um, and that opens people up to new possibilities, maybe that might be harder to reach. If you look at South Africa and the resistance um, to apartheid, music was at the core of that, right? Huge component of the protest movements every single day, it it was integral. Um, and that's part of how you, first of all, uplift and empower people, but then it's also how you convey messages, whether it's coordinating messages between uh, across resistance or with with the broader dominant culture that doesn't um, doesn't hear you otherwise. Right. And so that's the reason why art and music has always been integral in any kind of resistance movement. I'll be curious to see right now what will be the defining kind of artistic expressions? You know, we just saw Dave Chappelle comedy is one form, um, you know, and, and, you know, some people say that that way, what he did wasn't comedy. It, it, well, I, it was, it was not comedic, but it was done in a way that was speaking truth 
through someone who, as he said in that special, people trust to be able to do so in a way that felt like, because I think he's a comedian, he could be saying the things that are otherwise so difficult to own, take in and say, because we know that with humor, there's curiosity, there's play from a, from a somatic standpoint, from our nervous system standpoint, it's a relaxation in our nervous system and we're moving from sympathetic and activated into parasympathetic. And so we're a little bit more relaxed. And mm-hmm. so the opening within our own bodies to actually take in the truth of all the things that he said there, which was all about the atrocities and all about the police violence and all about the violence and murders of black bodies and how this has happened over time, that in a way we're primed the pump to be more open and receptive to that when it comes from someone like that or with a dose of humor or with some kind of um, relational aspect that doesn't feel quite as rigid, like didactic, yeah. like you better learn this or know this. Right. And, and that in relationship to the fact that there's concrete organizing going on right now in our streets, right? And so the artist has a role to play in relationship to that, right? And he was even really saying that in the, he was like, you know, the streets are speaking, you know, and, and, and then the artist plays its role in relationship to that. And so it'll be interesting to see what's emergent and what, you know, what will define this time artistically. Um, because I, I feel, dance. yeah, you know, and I, I even see people really grabbing music from prior to right now. Um, and, and, and for me, it almost seems prophetic when you look at like childish Gambino's this is America, or, um, I was, um, you know, I, even just some old soul songs that are like, it's almost like it's speaking to right now. So, so it doesn't have, but it, it'll be interesting for me to see what people will collectively um, share around the art that defines the moment. Right. right. And, 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 and how we will associate that with the, this uprising and this resistance that's happening right now. Yeah. And, and, and just before we close, this was just the last piece is if you're walking into a organization, a community, and you're doing this work and you're working with pretty much, I would assume white bodied folks who are trying to understand these systems and how they can, you know, start to address it within their place of, of work or, or their community. Um, what are some of the, the things that you may want to share as we, as we wind down here? Yeah. And, you know, I've, you know, I've been saying what I'm about to share with students on campuses for, especially white uh, students for a long time is that the first thing we have to understand is that we have to stand with and not for people. Right. Um, And so, cause one of the things I wrote in 2014, a blog post that went viral, it was called the culture of campus social justice elitism. Um, And part of it is about this intellectual one-upsmanship that we replicate from the Academy in our social justice rhetoric in the Academy. But but it's also this like um, this kind of purity test, this like element of like I'm holier than thou, and I'm standing for the right things because I'm performing this like what I think wokeness is, or what I think being a socially just person is, uh, and that's just another way of not humbling ourselves and not being willing to to go deeper into our commitment to listening and building meaningful relationships and learning. And so when I say stand with and not stand for you know, don't assume what other people want and what other people negotiate who are subject to oppression. There, um, uh, there's a, a different experience. And so it's important to humble yourselves as you step into these spaces. 
One organization that I know that is really committed to that is an organization called Surge showing up uh, for racial justice. And that's a really, it's a white organization teaching white people how to show up um, for racial justice in a way in which you do stand with and not for, particularly in this case, black people. Um, uh, because that's a thing <laughs> that, that white people will do is that it's like, let me show you how socially just I am. And so that, uh, and, and therefore I don't have to actually like do the deep, hard, uncomfortable work internally. Right. Right. Oh, one is- thing related to this is mm-hmm. that, and this is for me having moved to Massachusetts was really, really important. Um, is that don't assume who you vote for is some absurd absolving of racism (laughs) it's like it's like i personally view the left right political continuum framing it that way as basically a debate amongst white people about the enfranchisement of the rest of us that's the way i look i mean because none of it is about dismantling white supremacy right it's about how relatively enfranchised me or black people or latinx people should be in the relationship to this so just because, you know, and because I, I moved here and it's like because people thought they voted for the right person, that meant that they could say what I found to be super racist things mm-hmm. to me because they voted for the right person. Yeah. So therefore, I'm absolved. Yeah. Voting is important, but it's not the end. Right. Just like spiritual exactly. practice or looking inside isn't the end. I mean, you should, you know, go to Surge. Like you say, they're a great organization, S-U-R-J, and um, learn all the ways in which, you know, you can contribute to bail funds right now for the protesters. Learn the local officials that you can get involved with. Learn the local protests that are going on. But then also take the invitation to be a committed and embodied anti-racist by looking inside and doing that hard work of understanding the awful history of what it has been to to be in this country if you are a black person and what white people have done and the systems that still uphold that and find ways of holding your own heart and really going through, I know I did sort of a a period there where there was just a lot of despair, a lot of um, sort of the floor falling out and just feeling so awful and kind of being depressed when I was really, really learning um, more about the history that, you know, isn't taught in our schools that you have to find. It's there, right? There's a ton of resources on my website. It's there under resources. You can take the classes like Dr. Joy DeGruy. You can read Ibram Kendi. You mm. can read Layla Saad. You can read Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. You can, you know, take the wideawake.org classes. You can do, um, you know, racial equity tools, the People's Institute. Um, you can go to these places and learn those things as a layperson. You don't have to be an academic in university uh, and get a PhD in Black Studies as you did, but you can definitely learn this history and be able to hold that understand that in a way that can use some support somatically in groups, do it with other people. So you're not feeling like you're just having to do it alone, like a buoy out there bobbing around, you know, sort of without a life raft and feeling like it's so overwhelming. Cause I hear that from white bodied folks when they start to do this work, it's so overwhelming and it's so, I feel so ashamed or, you know, I feel so guilty or whatever. And then, you yeah. know, how do you do the work and in all these different ways and exactly. do the social justice work? Yeah, because the guilt and the shame doesn't do anything. It just paralyzes us. And, and, and I think it's really important to talk, to talk about responsibility. What is responsibility? Responsibility is responding to your ability. It's not about changing the whole world by yourself. It's not, that's not going to happen. It's, it's too overwhelming. It's crushing to, 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 to try to absorb all that. What, is, what can you do in your sphere of influence? 
What yeah. are the things that you can do? And what happens when we collectively start doing more of those things? And again, like you're saying, it's this embodied reality. If, if like, yes, get the information, but don't get so in your head that it prevents, it creates what we call pr- liberal paralysis. Right. Like in which people just get stuck and they just don't know what to do. It, it, it requires some type of action and, and, and learning and, and, and connecting what you understand with, with doing some kind of practice that translates into something different that's playing out in your life. All right. And on that note, playing out something different in your life, um, I think that's really kind of what we're going for here. Dr. Amr Ahmed, um, really an honor and a pleasure to have this conversation with you today. And, um, you know, folks who are white-bodied, if they want to join my area process group on Wednesdays, it's at 3.30 uh, Eastern time. It stands for Anti-Racism Response Ability, to your point, mm-hmm. <laughs> Embodiment accountability and action, A-R-R-E-A-A. And it's just an opportunity for people who are white-bodied to begin to be able to feel like if you want to come to me, you want to land, you don't know where to begin, you can ask me questions, I can point you in resources and also teach you some somatic grounding tools as we start diving into this and you know suggest ways of doing it as we do it in a group together. A lot of these other people have the same questions you have. They're not foolish questions, but it's the portal, mm-hmm. it's the opening. And then all the other kinds of organizations that we just talked about also. So <clears throat> that's on my website, maximeclarity.com, M-A-X-I-M-E-C-L-A-R-I-T-Y. So Dr. Ahmed, thank you so much for joining us today on Rerooted. It was a pleasure and um, continue with all of your good work. Thank you so much for having me. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNowToday to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.